As we continue on in our uh, seven or eight week series this fall, presence and practice, seven practices to help us experience and extend Christ's presence into the world. I'm going to invite Jack to come and read our scripture for today from John 9. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus' disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned so that he was born blind, this man or his parents? Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents. This happened so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. While it's daytime, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the, I am the light of the world. After he said this, he spit on the ground, made mud with his the saliva, and smeared the mud on the man's eyes. Jesus said to him, "Go wash in the pool of Siloam." So the man went away and washed. When he returned, he could see. The man's neighbor, neighbors and those who used to see him when he was a beggar said. Isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is. And others said, no, it's someone who looks like him. But, but the man said, yes, it's me. So they asked him, how are you now able to see? He answered, the man they called Jesus made mud, speared it in my eyes, and said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. They asked, where is this man? He replied, I don't know. Then they, then they led the man who had... Been blind, had, been, had been born blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus made the mud and smeared it on the man's eyes on a Sabbath day. So Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. The man told them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. Some Pharisees said, this man isn't from God because he breaks the Sabbath law. Others said, how, how, how can a sinner do miraculous, miraculous things like these? So the man who had been, bo- been born blind again, what do you, what you have to say about him since he healed your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. Perfect. Thanks, Jack. So Jesus was walking along, and perhaps he had a little hitch in his step. We hadn't been reading out of John's Gospel, but if you do go a few pages before this in John's Gospel, you see that he had just told a temple audience, I am the light of the world. <laughs> and then at the end of chapter 8, this is the beginning of chapter 9, the end of chapter 8 in John's Gospel, we're left with this ominous sentence. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Like, that's all we're left. Scene break. You know? It seems that the light of the world had come and exposed something dark in the world. In the world, especially the religious world, was looking to extinguish the light. They were going to, if Jesus was a a literal light bulb, they were going to throw rocks at it until they could put that light bulb out. You see, darkness is more comfortable, seemingly more forgiving. It's too much light hurts one's eyes. I think 
about, I, I can tell all these stories because my parents aren't here this weekend. When I was a kid, and especially in high school, and, and they would flip on the lights in the morning and pull off the covers. And that was always my dad in this case. Maybe it was your mom. And, and the kind of protests and, and how it hurts your eyes and how you don't want to be in the world at all at that moment. That's what light does if you're used to darkness. And then Jesus is walking along with all that context and all that baggage, and he sees a man. It says, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Note, note a little irony in there. He sees someone who can't see is what's happening. This is the guy who's, who's the wallpaper. He blends into the background, and the disciples ask a question that kind of just seems to serve as a cautionary warning. And, and it's, it's just a warning of what not to be like that guy. We all remember those people. Again, I'll tell some childhood stories. These are the people at the grocery store that your, your mom or your dad kind of moved the cart a little faster because they don't know how to explain it to a five-year-old, like what is up with that person. Um, I, I do this and I'm embarrassed of these instances where I know that question's coming and I know my answer is so incomplete. But alas, light shines on all of these people. The light noticed this person. And his disciples ask a question that seems really cruel to us. They say, who sinned, him or his parents? This question might seem cruel, it might seem outdated, but I think it gets updated in every generation. Essentially, this guy's situation is awful, it's not the way things should be. Surely someone or something is to blame. Was it him or his parents? Where can we put the blame? Like, this is the logic of Job's friends. You remember that Job story? Everything is going wrong. Everything is falling apart. His whole life, even his health, is going down. And he refuses not to suffer in front of God, but his friends are trying to come up with an explanation. They're trying to sort through all the things in his life that could have been his fault. This kind of logic gets updated even now, like in the cancer wing of Duke. Even to the parents of, uh, of, of a little kid, you try to figure out, what did I do to cause this? This logic gets updated at the, the line at Department of Social Services, just, just not far from here downtown, or in the wake of a divorce, or in the middle of the sorrow of infertility, we wonder, what did I do? Who's to blame? Surely someone sinned. Surely something's to blame. But the light exposes this lie. The light untangles this knotted logic. It disarms this kind of binary blaming. And Jesus' answer to them is neither nor. Neither him nor his parents sinned. He says, this happens so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. While it's daytime, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. But while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Y'all can say amen or hallelujah. That's, that's allowed. I didn't write that. It's really good. <clears throat> so I think this is a great text to talk about evangelism, about proclaiming the good news. Because 
the good news is in, in talking about the good news, gospeling is, is far more than whatever kind of canned pitched some of us have been taught. You see, the good news is the euangelion. It is literally good and news. It's a report. It's about light. Light that exposes. Light that brings forth the truth that is already there. The truth that's normally kind of hidden or obscured. As we round out the end of this church year and head towards Advent, which is the start of the church year, we remember that beautiful, hopeful promise and the report from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, some of you, especially my wife, who's an Amy Grant lover, knows about the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in pitch dark land, light has dawned. And Amy Grant didn't write that either, okay? <laughs> so you can say hallelujah. But this is the gospel. This is the good news that God has come to be present to us in Christ Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And praise God that it is God with us, not dependent on us with God, because that often gets so out of whack, right? God with us, not left up for us to achieve or to put ourselves into God's presence. We don't save ourselves. That in the midst of darkness, in the darkness that manifests itself as sin or oppression or misunderstanding or violence or suffering, light has come. It's the good news. Psalm 139 puts it, even the darkness is not dark to God. God's light shines like the day. Darkness as, is as light to God. I read that as saying that God is neither afraid nor surprised of the darkness and longs only that we be rescued from it, freed also from participating in it. Darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. So evangelism is far less about persuading someone about how bad they are or how disappointed God is in them or selling them some free pass to some by and by. And it's closer to what Rowan Williams has said, to proclaim the gospel is to proclaim that it is at last possible to be truly human. <laughs> to walk out of the shadow and into the light. Throughout John's gospel, you see this theme if we're good readers so, someone last week was like, I think I'm going to read a gospel this month. Which should I do? And I was like, John's hard, but John is awesome. Um, so if you're going to do this, pay attention to how light plays out in, in the, the gospel of John. In the first chapter, we hear about this word that becomes flesh, God's presence. And in him was life, and the life was light to all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then we have, a little while later, John the Baptist witnessing to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and this was the world that was created through him. But that world did not recognize him. The world was blind to him, to the light. It didn't receive him. It was inhospitable to him like the Pharisees. 
But those who believe, who have faith, become children of God, like him, with him, in him. The good news offered to all is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. So flash forward nine chapters to see what that glory looks like. What that life and light giving presence acts like. And well, it looks like spit and mud. <laughs> Normal, gritty, visceral, and gross. The stuff we tell our kids not to mess with <laughs> when it rains, right? Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud and smears it on the guy's eyes. Proclaiming the good news to this man who is blind, literally always and only in the dark, look like what I call the ministry of mud pie making. Like that's what evangelism is in this story. The ministry of mud pie making. Here's why. The ministry of mud pie making uses what is available, the dirt, but it also uses what is deeply a part of you, your spit, <laughs> in order to be a part of the transformation of somebody else. The illumination of their vision, their walking in light, maybe for the first time ever. Take something that is there and something that you carry to the situation and it results in transformation of somebody else. The ministry of mud pie making is also a ministry of recreation. Jesus, the word through whom the world was made, harkens back to the Genesis story of God breathing God's spirit into mere mud to create humanity. Pay attention whenever the Bible talks about mud. Because mud plus God equals creation. And in this case, new creation. And that's precisely the ministry and calling we've been given. Ministers of reconciliation. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. It, the, the text there always just says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. <laughs> and as a new creation, you're called to participate in God's renewal and help bring about this new creation in others. This Recreation is often experienced as healing and health, and that happens bodily, but that also happens socially and communally. Community making is health making and whole making. Brenda Salter McNeil talks about evangelism as the good news that brings us to God, but it also brings life and healing to a broken, dying, and divided world. Anything less than that is not the gospel. The ministry of mud pie making is a ministry of new creation. The ministry of mud pie making also happens even on the Sabbath and is a function of rest. The ministry of mud pie making is a restful ministry. It's not born out of anxiety, but it wholly leans on the work that God has done and is doing. It's born out of grace and excess, this overflow, knowing that rest is baked into God's plans for a very good creation and also God's plans for recreation. 
God says, it's good, it's good, it's very good, and then I'm going to rest. <laughs> and that shapes our ministry of mud pie making, of gospeling. And also, the ministry of mud pie making is a baptism. Or at least it leads to a baptism. Jesus says to the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And we're talking text note, not the Siloam in Arkansas, but this pool that means sent. The gospel writer takes pains to highlight the meaning of Siloam. This man's new vision, his walking in the light, gives him a new life. It's a new life that requires a new imagination. So he, I imagine him washing in this pool, and behind the screen there's actually a baptismal pool. And what happens with that, we can do a tour later if you'd like. What happens with that is when that's filled up and you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're, you must be drowned <laughs> before you are raised to new life. There are even some traditions that bring you into the pool and then completely change your direction so that you're not going in the same direction because you've turned and gone another way. So in this man's baptism in this Siloam pool, he, he must have his old dark limits drowned so that his new life in the light might be resurrected. This is, of, of course, a little hard to handle for those around him who are used to seeing him suffer in silence, who are used to the way things were. Talk to a lot of people who have had later in life conversion experiences, and it's really hard because even as the gospel makes community possible, it also drives often a wedge into the old community because it puts people on notice a little bit, right? And, and it should be. That's, that's the difference between dark and light. <laughs> but let me encourage you to take this ministry of mud pie making uh, tact with you in your gospel proclamation. Making mere mud pies. Whether in a casual encounter with a neighbor or a coworker, where you take what is available in that conversation, you also take what God has given you and you put them together, hoping for the transformation of someone else. Or whether that manifests itself in sitting with someone for a long time through a sustained hard season, Take what's available, take yourself to it, and trust in God to bring about a transformation. To use your gifts and your knowledge, your experience, your humor, even your weaknesses, your personality, and you participate with God in healingly offering light and life. I've seen this happen in our midst. I've seen it at Potluck when someone is living in this dark untruth about themselves. Maybe it's a person that never sits with anyone because they, they don't have it in them to think that someone would want to be with them. And, and the gospel in that situation is someone encroaching upon that space and offering hospitality by approaching them with Christ's love. I've seen this in our mustard seed groups. Uh, even this summer, I specifically remember this one event when someone that, uh, was, was talking about this kind of tape that was running in their head about how they weren't good enough. Uh, I, I think they had lost a job, like the third job in a row, and it was getting really rough. And someone just 
totally interjected and, and said, that's not true, that thing that you're saying about yourself. Like, that's gospeling. That's bringing good news. That's making mud pies and putting them on someone else's face so that they can see where they couldn't see. This also happens, and you have to be careful how you do this. It can happen with joys and sorrows for neighbors and coworkers, because it shouldn't be contained in these church walls, but also we shouldn't always be the, the people putting our uh, Jesus interpretation on events, but often you'll find it, as you cultivate a ministry of presence to people, people will come to you and say, I don't know what this means. Please help me discern and figure out what this means in light of this apparent light and knowledge that you have that I don't know what it's like, I don't know what it's about, but I need your help in this. Sometimes mud pie making looks like that with people who don't even know Jesus. It's pre- it is precisely here in that practice that you'll both experience and extend the very presence of Jesus who is the light of the world. It's here that you work with God in healing or recreating, even as you are healed and recreated, it's here that you are given rest, even as you extend that rest to others. It's here that you are transformed by the renewing of your mind as a living sacrifice. You walk off the altar and into the world. And when you do that, be prepared to meet a little bit of resistance, as we've already said. Light blinds before it gives vision. Light exposes. When the Pharisees, who, by the way, were not unanimous in how they assess this miracle, you can tell that the light is kind of starting to mess with their categories. They say, well, he did this thing on the Sabbath which transgresses our expectations there, but he did a really good thing, and bad people can't do good things. So what do we make of this Jesus? You can see the light is starting to filter into their situation. So they say, so, so they go back and they interview the man. They say, what do you have to say about him since he healed your eyes? This should be a question that those of us who are in Christ should at some point expect or hope for. Like this is like when we get to like, be like actually. <laughs> and the, the man replied, he's a prophet, which For the way the Gospels, especially John, talks about Jesus, that might seem like a massively unsatisfying confession from this man. Give give the guy a break. Like his eyes are working for the first time in his life. (laughs) So he's able to muster a prophet. I I would kind of hope for something like he's the Lord, he's the Messiah, he's the second person of the Trinity, he's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, you know. But this guy musters, he's a prophet, (laughs) but prophet is telling prophets go to those with hard hearts and blind eyes and stopped up ears and calcified imaginations prophets speak from the inside of God's people to call the rest of God's people back to faithfulness to their God they don't lob stones over the fence. They, they call their own people and they say, I'm really torn up about this because we're screwing up. Prophets both criticize and energize. 
This is how Isaiah is able to say these, these hard words of judgment, but he's also in, in Isaiah 40 able to say, comfort, comfort my people, right? They criticize and they energize as they cast a hopeful vision of renewal of all creation through an alternative community. This is why the practice of proclaiming the good news is inevitably for the church like a prophetic thing that we do. So many of us that grew up in very evangelistic communities um, don't assume that evangelism and like a prophetic, socially engaged word go together, but I, I think they, they, at their core, are the same, or they can be, they should be. So like an, an instance of this uh, for me lately, maybe the most prophetic thing that I've read or been working through lately is this book by a Chicago pastor named Daniel Hill called White Awake. The subtitle is An Honest Look at What It Means to Be White. And in that he, he deals through um, some of the, uh, again, he uses the analogy of, of waking up, but also of light and dark and blindness um, because uh, he, he assumes, and I think he's right, that all of this stuff is here, we just need to wake up for it. Uh, most, m- most of our uh, friends and brothers and sisters of color don't want us to do anything, they just want us to wake up <laughs> to what's already happening. And so it, it's interesting, as he uses these categories of blindness, light, and awakening, being able to see things as they really are and being able to give a new courage and a new imagination to see a right as people are being made new. He talks about stages in this awakening. And I think we see some of these in this story, in this man with this Jesus-made mud mask. Like the first thing that happens is an encounter must happen. That mud pie must happen first for our awakening, for our... To, to receive new eyes, to receive sight. And then a bunch of other things kind of can get jumbled and can happen for different people in different ways at different times. Denial, in, in this book, it, it would be like either race isn't a problem or I couldn't possibly uh, be part of the problem. Or disorientation. <laughs> in, in, in a story in Mark's gospel about Jesus healing a blind man, there's this awesome detail in which the guy's um, which is like quintessential disorientation because the guy's vision starts to come back and it's really hazy and fuzzy and the man just is staring and you can imagine him kind of squinting and he says, those men look like trees, right? Like he's completely disoriented by this new vision he's been receiving because he doesn't know how to use these tools. He doesn't know how to see through this vision. Another thing the book talks about is shame which is rooted in despair or self-righteousness. I have a friend who's also dealing with some of these things, and it's really scary when someone rushes to the idea that they're somehow woke (laughs) and that the work has been done and that they're already there. And finally, there's awakening, and then there's active participation, which, again, we see in this man. So you see how this this idea of this prophetic word and this good news word are so intermingled and intertwined because the the difficulties are the same and the realities that they bring about this new creation, this new reality, are also the same. In our story, and almost always where the good news is proclaimed, we see some of these same responses. I pray that we'll continue to have our collective 
vision expanded along these lines for how good and how renewing the good news is, how good the God that has come to us in Jesus really is that makes this good news good at all, how illumining the light of the world is, that Jesus, this light of the world, really is that bright, <laughs> that significant, and shines that deeply into the dark corners of each and every one of our own lives, our own hearts, but also into those long corridors and high strongholds of societal ills. Like that's how bright that light is. And that we, like the, the man who received his sight and was washed so he might be sent, that we might go and tell about it. If, if we don't know how to do that or we don't feel comfortable doing that, we just start doing that. That's, that's, you are called to do that. That as you walk in the light, you will live as witnesses to the world that God has changed the world. Let us not be surprised, therefore, if the way we live makes that change visible. That's what witness is. And we might experience Christ's presence in that God's mighty works might be displayed in us, even through really bad situations. This man was blind in the first place so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him. And Jesus called us who follow him to be salt and light. He proclaimed that we'll be a city on the hill. He also told us that he'd be with us to the end of the world. And so I take that as a good promise in this passage when he says, as long as I'm in the world, which is always, even until the end of the age, he will be the light of the world for us. That seems like really good news. <laughs> Amen. Will you guys pray, pray with me? Uh, Father, we just ask for, for vision, for light. Um, make us prepared for that so that we, don't, we aren't surprised when we have to squint and adjust. Uh, Lord, um, help us get our hands dirty making mud pies with um, the more than enough stuff that you've given us on hand and the more than enough gifts that you've equipped us. Um, help us expect transformation. Uh, turn us um, out, open us up uh, to you in this world and, and to the people who you put us in front of. Uh, we thank you that these, it's exactly in these practices that we rehearse and re-rehearse and live into the identity that you've called us to as, as people uh, made new by the good news. Open our lips that our mouths may declare your praise. Amen.